I can promise you I did not leave because I wasn't enjoying myself. I, I had to leave this morning because my, uh, I had to be a, a mother. My daughter had a baby shower and I had to go to it this morning. So, and I promised I'd be back. And here I am. There you go. Good. Excuse me just a second. Okay. Is that all right? Okay, thanks. I guess it's what you get for being short. <laughs> what did you say? Oh, oh, yeah, you had a problem last night. That's right. Okay. Well, I'm just so grateful to be here today, and I want to thank the committee, and I want to thank Barbara, and I want to thank Sandy, my hostess, and, the, and all the ladies. Everybody here has been so friendly and so nice, and truly I feel welcome, and I want to thank you for that. I'm not an experienced speaker. This is actually the fourth time, so please don't throw things, and, <laughs> and don't go to sleep on me, okay? Everybody said, you got to do something funny, you know, so they won't go to sleep on you, so if I start, <laughs> y'all just bear with me, okay? Uh, I really think this celebrate the miracle, and I want to show you my mug. Isn't that pretty? Now look at the lipstick, but isn't that pretty? They gave me that, um, and I just looked at that, and I thought, isn't that the nicest gift? And the theme for this weekend is wonderful, celebrate the miracle. And truly, this is a blessing for me to be here, because this is a testimony of how, through the miracle of this program and your love and support, that I've been able to take a life of tears and turn it into a life of joy and happiness that I can be here today to share my story and to tell you how the, my how power, who I choose to uh, call Jesus my Lord and Savior, has brought me this far. Now, you want to know how far he brought me? Well, <laughs> I can tell you that I was born in the big war, and that's the big, big war. That wasn't Korea, wasn't Vietnam, it was the big one before that. And that y'all going, hmm, let's see, now when was that one? Well, it was a long time ago. A lot of you shaking your head. Yeah, you're right. She's an old sucker, isn't she? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it takes a little while, but, you know, some, of, some here weren't born in those days. But anyway, I thought about it when I turned 50, and I said, hmm, I guess that's pretty nice, though, because I read that the good Lord had given me the... Fifty years on earth, and I think that's a blessing because a lot of people don't have the opportunity to live this long. So I'm grateful every year. I'm fixing to have the 51st birthday, and I'm happy that he's given me that privilege to be here that long, especially to enjoy this wonderful family I have in the fellowship of this program. I just want to um, share with you where it all started, and I am one of the few in this town that originally from Atlanta. And I was born at the old, old Piedmont Hospital, <laughs> the original. And so I'm one of the, the few uh, true natives of, of Atlanta. And I'm proud of that because people, everybody says, where are you from? And I say, Atlanta. They go, oh, no, no, you're not from Atlanta. Well, yes, I am. And I'm happy to say that that's where I'm from. Uh, my life is not unique. Um, I came right out of a dysfunctional family life. And... Um, I think many of you can probably identify with that. We didn't have alcoholism in our home. We were not, uh, my parents didn't drink. But they, my mother was certainly a candidate for um, Al-Anon. 
we had alcoholism on both sides of the family, and it was certainly predominant in my father's side because my grandfather died an alcoholic, plus four of his brothers died alcoholic. So it was definitely dysfunctional on his side, and on my mother's side, my uncle was an alcoholic, and uh, well, great uncle. But my grandmother came out of such a dysfunctional home that when she was 15, she left home and never went back. She never saw her family again. No one ever knew what happened. So I'm assuming that it was quite traumatic, whatever happened, and that it was certainly dysfunctional because she never went back to her family. So nevertheless, we were, I was raised in a little community called Ben Hill, Georgia, and I don't know if any of you know where that is, but it's south of Atlanta. And it was a little small town. Excuse me, let me get something to drink. I'm not nervous. I'm really not. Um, in fact, I've heard myself speak so much this week on tape till I'm sick of myself. <laughs> the first time I spoke, I didn't have a tape. And I spoke at Pine Isle, and they said, you know, well, we'll take you on good faith and come on, you know. Well, they gave me a tape. And so this week I've been listening to the tape everywhere. I've been driving around town, and I'm sick of my story. So I'm glad to stay here so I don't have to listen to myself anymore. But anyway, um, in our little town, my uncle's on the grocery store. And that's where all the men hung out. Every day they would all go to the grocery store. And at night, especially, you know, they'd wind up the day and they'd all hit the grocery store. Well, in the back of the grocery store was a little bar. And that's where they all met. But my father didn't drink. But he went there to socialize with his brothers and, you know, to, they'd pass business along, you know, things like that. And, uh, oh, my mother couldn't stand it. She knew he was going to come home drunk one day. So every afternoon we'd go to the grocery store, go in, drag my dad out every day. And that's where I learned my first skill of go find him. Yeah. <laughs> Because my mother taught me, you know, let's go to the store. I know one time we took this trip, came home, Daddy wasn't there. Boy, we had to go all over Ben Hill. She found him, drug him home. And poor man, you know, so embarrassing. He never was drunk. He didn't drink. He was just with his family. But she couldn't stand it. She couldn't stand it. Well, we, I have, I'm the middle child. Now, that explains it all. I can just sit down right now, but that's it. I'm the middle. I have an older sister and a younger sister. And if any of you... Heard about that middle child, unique, different, you know, they're, they don't fit anywhere. Well, that's me. I didn't fit. I was just, I don't look like them. I don't act like them. I don't know why God put me with them. But nevertheless, I got into this family in the middle. And here I was. And my, of course, I was telling you about the big war. Well, the big war took my father. And he left right after I was born. I don't know if that's a blessing or what, but he took off, went to the Navy. Well, he came back in four years. Well, you can imagine in four years, you don't know who the man, I mean, he walked in, was like, you know, well, hello, and how are you? You know, who are you? So when he got back, of course, mother got pregnant. And here comes this third child. And he made the comment to our maid in the kitchen one day that, this was going to be his child. And I thought, that's tacky. You know, I'm here too. And so is my older sister. But he told the maid, he said, this is, I didn't get to enjoy the other two girls, but this one's going to be mine. 
Well, that made an impression on my mind. You know, I, that, I really took that seriously. Well, that's the way it was, folks. It was a divided household. Mother raised my sister, older sister myself, and he raised the youngest. And she was a brat. A brat. I tell her every day she's a brat. And she was. But the horror of it all was that she was the ugly one, the brat. Not ugly looking, but she was, had a bad attitude. But she got by with it. But the oldest sister and myself couldn't get by with anything. And mother was, by today's standard, she was very abusive. I don't know about those days, because I don't know what went on in other people's homes, but I, would, I think it was, I know it was very abusive. And that's the way we were raised. Well, this one would get by with murder. The other two would get head beat out of them. So it wasn't a very pleasant situation. Well, I got into grade school, and I met up with one of Hitler's hitmen, first grade teacher. She was horrible. And the first thing she did was spank me in front of the class. And that wasn't fun, folks. And I identified with that woman just like I did with my mother. And I was terrified. I couldn't learn anything, no matter what you did. I could not learn. Well, now, after I've been in the program for a while, I realized I couldn't learn because I was under so much stress. You can't teach a child anything under stress. I was in stress. I was under stress at home. I was under stress in school. It was a bad situation. Well, by the time I got to the fourth grade, or fifth grade, rather, I was considered hopeless. And in those days, they didn't have, quote, quote, learning disabilities. You weren't labeled. You were hopeless. So it was what do you do? What do you do with this hopeless little girl? Well, the only thing they could think of that was constructive enough was to send me to a parochial school. Well, we were not Catholic. We were Protestant. And here I marched off to this Catholic school. Well, you can imagine, that was like going from daylight to dark. But I got there in the fifth grade, and those nuns took a look, one look at me, and they said, oh, we'll shake that woman up, that little girl up, <laughs> no time flat. But this one was really sweet, and she realized my pain. Maybe she'd met mother, I don't know. <laughs> she, she took a liking to me, and that was nice. And she realized the pain that I was in. And she worked with me that whole year. And she really got me up to a level that I went in as a D student. She got me up to a B student the first year. And that was my real first ray of sunshine, that I was a person, that I had self-worth. And I went to their religion classes. Loved it. Loved it. Went to Mass every morning. Loved it. I mean, I was happier than a bug in a rug. It was wonderful. I finally felt that I was belonging to something, even though I wasn't. I was not Catholic. But they made an impression on me in that Baltimore catechism that all you're shaking your head. Yeah, you you were there too. (laughs) That that Catholic church was one true church. No question about it. And you better belong to that Catholic church. Are you going to go down where, you know? So I thought, oh, my goodness, here I am from a family of Protestants. How on earth am I ever going to get into that Catholic church? 
And I don't know how many Southerners are in here, but in the South in those days, you did not belong to the Catholic Church. That was a cult. And so I had to figure out a way to get myself in that door if I was going to be saved. And so, and this was hard stuff in those days. Well, the time rocked on, and I got out, and I got to go back in the real world. In high school, they let me go to public high school. That was big news, big time. Got to get back out in the real world. And I did real well. I had a good time in high school, dated a lot. I was a cheerleader, you know, had a, had a good time. But my sister decided to screw everything up. She decided to elope. Well, when she couldn't take any more of the home life, mother was under her skin, so she eloped. Well, that messed it up for me because every time I brought a date home, mother immediately thought I was going to marry him and, you know, elope. So I had a real hard time getting a date because you didn't want to obviously go home, you know, go meet my family. But I finally decided, and we had a situation in our house, Mother and I did, where she'd throw fits. You know, every time, she, I mean, she had these mood swings. But believe me, she's not an alcoholic, but she might as well have been one. She had mood swings. And you never know which way the mood was going to swing. You were always walking on eggshells. Well, her way of controlling me with gifts. And when she'd throw a fit, then I got a beautiful gift. I always got pretty things, really nice things. Even got a car one time. I mean, I got nice gifts. Got allowance. Lived at home, got a job, got allowance. I mean, I really had it made. It's too stupid to know it, but I, I had it made then. And um, the bad thing about it, though, was then when she'd have another fit, she'd throw it back at me. What she did. What she gave me. And I didn't like that. That would get under my skin. So my senior year, I said, okay, I'm going to take this bull by the horn. Then I'm going to treat my own self to my senior year in high school. And I'm going to pay for everything. That way, whatever I want to do, she can't say a word about it. So I went out and got me a little part-time job in a shoe store. I don't know if any of you know about Thompson Bowling Lee. I think they're still around. But they were there in those days. And I got a little job in there at the handbag and hosiery department, which used to be right in front of the, the store. Well, I've worked in one day, not thinking anything, you know, about what's going on. And here comes this nice-looking young man. And I recognized him. He walked in, and I knew him. I thought, huh, I met that boy. I knew him from the Catholic school, grade school. And I smiled and started flirting. You know, just big as life. And he took a look at me and went, hmm, let me get acquainted. And he went on over and uh, his friend worked there. And, of course, he wanted to get a day. You know, who wouldn't? You know, she looked like she was hot to trot, you know. So, but I was, I was trying to be friendly. But he didn't recognize me. But I knew who he was. So, I, you know, as soon as he left, his friend came over and said, you know, but, would you go out? I said, sure, go out with him. I've known him forever, you know. And he said, you have? And I said, yeah, we went to, to uh, grade school together. Of course, I didn't look the same in grade school because I had braces, you know, and the whole nine yards. So anyway, we went out, and he was the God of my understanding. <laughs> he was everything I wanted, everything. But the, he was smart. Now, that's what I needed. I needed brains because I felt like I 
you know, was still questionable. I was borderline. So I, I had to have some brains. And he had the smarts. He also had the ability to stand up to my mother. And that's what I really needed. I needed somebody that could fight a battle for me. And he could. Oh, could he ever. Well, that was it. Signed, sealed, and delivered. But what was the frosting on the cake was he was Catholic. And I really needed that. And I thought, well, you know, this is an answer to prayer. God brought him along so that I can get in that church. So I did. As soon as he got that ring on my finger, well, I was down to that Catholic church. I mean, we got engaged, and Mother said, fine, get engaged. Just don't get married. She didn't have any problem with you being engaged. It's just when you said, I do, that made all the difference in the world, in her book. So every six months, we'd go back to her and say, you know, let's have a wedding. She said, oh, no, no, let's just wait six more months. Just six more months. Finally, enough was enough. So this priest in our church knew Mother. So we had no problem when we went to him and pleaded our case. He said, sure, fine, you know. We don't do this in the Catholic Church. We, you know, go by the book. But for you two, we know your case. Yes, we'll go through the, we'll just slip through that red tape and we'll get you two married. So we did. We married right in the church. Mama went right by on her way to work. We were in there getting married. So that night, Mama came home from work, told her we were married. She had a fit, but I didn't care. So I didn't have to stay there with her any longer. So she just exploded and I left. That was it. The next day, she sent me a refrigerator. That was the... <laughs> This is true story. It was a nice one, too. So, but that night that I got married, that wasn't a happy night because I realized that I missed the wedding that I'd always dreamed of. I wasn't going to have that big, pretty wedding that I'd always dreamed of. But that was okay, because the other side of the corner was I was with a mother, so I thought. But nevertheless, we got married. Well, we got a little duplex, moved in, and I didn't know what alcoholism was all about. did not know a thing about alcoholism. To me, that was, you know... Bumsville. I mean, you were skid bug. Well, we hadn't been married any time. And he got a toothache. And he said, would you take me to the liquor store? I want to get rid of my toothache. <laughs> News to me. But, you know, I'll drive you to the liquor store. I, you know, I couldn't buy liquor. I was too young. But I could drive in there. So I drove him down. He got liquor. Drank it. And the next thing I knew, he was on top of the house. Mm. So I'm out in the yard, and we're in the duplex, and I'm screaming, get off the top of the house, get off the house, get off the house. Neighbors come out, it's dark, and they're going, who are you yelling at? I said, well, my husband, and they couldn't see him. It was dark. All they could see was me out there yelling. So I looked like the idiot, right? So he gets down, comes in. Well, then it started, you know... After I got in the program, then it dawned on me. My Lord, when we were dating. One time we went on a date, we went to the toddle house to eat. He fell off the stool. I just looked down and I said, honey, get up. 
<laughs> you know? I thought everybody fell off stools in the house. I didn't know. Small town. Didn't have any alcoholism in my family. Nobody acted that way, but, I, you know, I, I didn't have any brothers either. So I thought, what the heck? You know, maybe all boys do this. <laughs> you know? He'd go off with a group of boys, and then he'd tell me the next day about how they'd put him out on a street corner somewhere. I figured he just didn't want to go home drunk or go home to his parents. I didn't ever want to go home to mine, so what difference did it make, you know? So, anyway, it was with us from the beginning, but I didn't know that. Well, we were a good Catholic family, and the, his mother father were Catholic, of course, and his mother's real, you know, how everybody gives you advice when you get married. Well, her advice was always be ready and don't say no. And she wasn't talking about an invitation for dinner. You get the drift. So, I practiced that. Be ready? Never say no. Of course, Catholics don't practice birth control either. So, we had a child. And she was a little preemie. She was born, weighed three pounds. And she was in the hospital for almost three months after she was born. She was our miracle child. And I still, to this day, she's a miracle in my life. But while she was in the hospital, we weren't idle. We were busy. And when she, I got her home, I found out we were having another one. Now, that wasn't happy news, folks. Not happy at all. But the, I prayed about that. But the bad part about that was that I felt so alone in that situation because there I was trying to be a good wife, and I wasn't happy that I was expecting another one so soon. But he was overjoyed. And he made me feel terrible that I wasn't happy about it. But the Lord took that one, and that was a blessing. So we went on, waited a year and a half, and then had another one, had a little girl, another little girl. Well, he was successful. As I said, he was smart, real smart. So he got a big promotion, and we got shipped down to Miami. Well, I'd only lived in Ben Hill, Georgia. So if any of you know anything about Miami, it might as well have been Italy. It might as well have been Spain. You know, nobody on our street spoke English. Nobody was from the United States. I mean, I went to the other end of the world. Well, those few years, first few years we were down there, those are my years of solitary confinement because I didn't have a car. And I had three babies. I had the third daughter was born down there. Now, I was the old woman that lived in the shoe because I was having so many babies I didn't know what to do. And they were coming every two years. And I suddenly said, whoa. Pope's not raising these kids. I am. So we, I got interested in finding out about birth control. But still, we had to get it approved through the church. And where there's a will, there's a way. And we found this priest that said, okay. And I said, thank you. And that was the, that was the beginning of some freedom. But anyway... We got down there, and um, things are different when you live in another part of the world. You know, where I came from, if you wanted to visit somebody, you called up and said, I'm coming over. You know, do you mind? Are you going to be home? Not there. You opened the door, they all came in. Aunts, uncles, cousins, it didn't matter who. And they'd just come visit. 
And then they'd go out the back door, come around and come again in the front door. Beat anything I've ever seen. Anything. But I got used to it, and I learned to love them. And the thing that was so funny, I didn't have a car. For three years, I didn't have a car. Couldn't go anywhere. He, he left every Monday, came back on Friday. It was horrible. My big entertainment was to walk kids around the block. Well, nobody spoke English. So, you know, either learn to speak their language or taught baby talk. Did a little of both. It was, it was the craziest thing I've ever seen. Well, finally, I decided I'd had enough. Enough's enough, and I'd had all I'm going to take of that solitary confinement. So I found out about this neighbor, lived within walking distance, who uh, was president of a bank. And I said, well, I can certainly walk over to that guy's uh, house and see about getting me a job. So I had banking experience. And that's the reason I'm as crazy as I am, I work in a bank. And um, so I went over and talked to the man. And he said, yeah. He said, you know, use uh, a part-time teller. I said, great. I don't know how the world was going to get there, but I got had the job. So I got this babysitter and my husband. Now, the big thing was, you will never put these kids in the nursery. No, 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 not his children. Well, I called up the church. The Lord had it worked out. I found this wonderful woman, and she had a car. So, you know, it all worked out. Well, I got the job, and I went down and got me a little Mustang. I bought me a 65 Mustang, and I became Mustang Sally. That was my name. <laughs> little blue Mustang. I had wheels, and I was ready to roll. So, and excuse me. Well, anyway, things were not perfect, but at least I had a out now. I was out and about a little bit. But the drinking was not doing too well in our household, and I was getting a little bit more depressed, a little bit more. I knew that alcohol was a problem, and I didn't like the drinking, but I certainly didn't think he was an alcoholic. But I knew that the alcohol was, was some of the problem. But in my life came an old friend. got a phone call one day. This was an Eastern Airlines pilot, and we had dated back during uh, high school. And he called and said, I heard you moved down to Miami. I'm going to fly down here. And would you like to meet me? Oh, was that a ray of sunshine to meet somebody from home? I mean, you know, an old friend. So I told my husband. And he said, fine, no problem. Well, he was out of town. Hmm, so I thought. And so we met. And I did, and he knew I did, and I said, yes, I did. And I had a long, hard road to hoe because of what I did. And I'm not proud of it, but it kept the drinking going for a long time because that's all he needed to keep me in his control. And as things got worse, every time I'd say I'm leaving, He'd say, don't let the door hit you in the butt on the way out. However, you're not taking the girls. You're an unfit mother. And you'll never get them in a court of law. Now, that was his thing. Well, he also knew that I would never go home to mother. That was like jumping from fine pan into fire. So, where was I going with three kids? Nowhere. So, he had a lot of control over me. 
So what I finally, what Daddy did, was Daddy got tired of Mother, and he shipped her to Florida. Bought her a nice big house down there, promised her he was going to retire. He just didn't say when. And <laughs> he sent her to Florida. Well, I knew he was alone. And so one day the tiff started in the house. And um, his favorite, you know, he went to his speech. Don't let the door hit you in the butt on the way out, you know. And I said, well, I think I'm going this time. And he looked real cute, you know, like, well, where do you think you're going with three kids, you know. And I said, well, I'm going home to Daddy. He looked like he'd seen a ghost. He said, what do you mean you're going home to Daddy? And I said, well, Daddy's alone. And he could use some help. Well, he liked to die. He, first time, I had a place to go. And he knew it. But we had been transferred at this time to Dallas, Texas. And... I knew the drinking wasn't going if I was going. So I told him at this point, I said, if you will get your act together, then I won't go home. But I said, the drinking's not going to Texas. And what's more, I'm taking the checkbook over. And he looked like he'd seen three ghosts. But he agreed to it. So we packed up. Now, we were going for a new life. You know these geographic changes we talk about, you know? Everything's going to be better when we get there. Well, we were on the road. We were going to Texas, and life was going to be wonderful. We got out there. He didn't drink that I saw. That was the beginning of what you call closet drinking. We didn't, we didn't have any more alcoholism openly in the house. Everything was pretty smooth sailing for about two years. I went out, bought us a house. Got the kids all settled. I didn't go. I didn't work. I was one of these community mothers, busy, 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 busy. You know, I was in and had my fingers in all the little pies in town. You know, I was real busy. But that was fine because that kept me from thinking about things. And he was traveling. Had a big job going up in Tulsa, Oklahoma. He was smart. And um, things got kind of rough. And he got called in. Got reported. Customer up in Tulsa, Oklahoma, reported him to the company. And that wasn't a very nice scene. But before he got, well, she back up, before he got reported, though, he got kind of, got to the point where some mornings he just couldn't go to the office. And I thought he had the virus. I thought he had a bad case of the virus every morning. So every morning, I would go to the phone, and I would tell him, you know, sorry, he'll be late. He's got the virus. And they'd go, again? I'd go, yeah. Mm-hmm. Seems got the chills, got the shakes. Sounds like the virus to me. I didn't know anything about drinking, alcoholism. Well, one morning, he was just shaking away. I mean, really shaking. And I kept saying, honey, let me get your appointment with the doctor. Let me get you to the No, no, no. He said, but what I think you can do is go talk to AA. And I said, for what? And he said, because I think I might have a little problem. I said, well, you drank, but you haven't drank in two years. What's your problem? And he said, well, you know, he'd been drinking all along, just drinking that I didn't know about it. So he said, you go over there, though, and you find out about AA. And then you come back and you tell me all about it. So... 
I went to the phone and I called him. And this real nice man said, well, honey, um, if he won't say A, uh, I think he can find it. But he said, by the way, he said, uh, there's a little meeting for wives. It's called Al-Anon. And he said, it meets this morning at 10 o'clock. And why don't you come on over here? He said, I think those ladies would be, you know, happy to meet you. I'm sure that man thought, just get her in here, you know, just whatever it takes, get her in here. So I went, and I walked in, and for the first time in my life, and I really mean this, I identified with those women. Everything they said that morning, I identified with. Well, I've talked to some AAs, too. They were very nice. This was the Al-Anon meeting was behind the AAs. They had an AA room, and then it was in the back, the Al-Anon room. So anyway, the AAs were very nice, very sweet, you know, and they told me to take, the ladies told me, they said, now you take all the literature you want. And I, I bought, I got everything. I even bought the One Day at a Time book. I bought it all. I wanted to know everything about this AA and Al-Anon. Well, I go home. And he said, what did you learn? And I said, well, here, here's all the literature. Here are the books. You read it. Well, he got to the part about detachment. And he said, what do you mean they're telling you to detach from me? Well, I didn't know what they were meant. That's my first meeting, you know. He said, that's terrible. He said, those people are trying to brainwash you. He said, you can't, you know, go to something like that. They're telling you to detach from me. Well, he hated Al-Anon from that point on. Hated AA too, but he hated Al-Anon. Never, ever. I fought for this program in my life tooth and toenail, truly. He hated it. Never agreed for me to come to Al-Anon. So I always say to people, do not take your literature home and share it with your... The sick party, because that is not the thing to do. It's your program, your literature. But anyway, when he got called in to his company, he couldn't take it. That was too much for him, because that was his whole life. So he went into a hotel in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and decided that he'd commit suicide. And he was going to do this over a period of a few days. And... I guess he thought that I was going to come rescue him, but I was on the other end of the line with good old Al-Anon, and they were saying, don't go get him. Don't go get him. Well, he called the first day, you know, he was really drunk. He said, will you come get me? I said, no, no, I won't come get you. Next day he called, the voice was a little bit more faint, will you come get me? I said, no, I, I won't come get you. Well, that day... And then, of course, I'm on the phone with, with AA and Al-Anon through this. This was a very, very much of a crisis situation in my life. And um, I decided to, that I wanted to read that day, and I wanted to write. And I had I'm just going to write down my thoughts. And the girls weren't at home. They were in school. And I had a piece of paper and a pencil, and I sat down at the kitchen table. And this is the absolute truth. My hand just started going across the paper, just like that. And I'm thinking, what is going on here, you know? And when my hand stopped moving, I read what I had written. And what I had written was that my life had a purpose. That all of the pain, all of the agony, all of the hurt was was for a reason. And that was that I was to take the message 
and share it, share my life with others. And that was my purpose in this life, was to carry the message. And I was so excited. I couldn't believe it. Finally, I had a purpose. I had a reason for being here. And that was wonderful. I was so excited. I just couldn't. I I was so excited. I still get excited when I think about that day. Because God gave me the reason that I'm supposed to be here. And that is to share my spirit, strength, and hope with all of you. So he called the next day. And he, by this time, he was very faint. You could hardly hear him. And I said, no, I said, no I'm not going to come. And I thought, well, you know, I better do something, though. So I called and talked to AA in Dallas. And they said, yeah, it sounds like he's pretty bad off. They said, we'll call AA in Tulsa and have them go over and see about him. Well, they did. And I'll always be grateful because they went over. They stayed with him for several days, got him on the airplane, and sent him back to Dallas. took him nine hours to get home from the airport, but he got there by himself. I didn't go after him. And he came in a very, very sick man. Very sick man. Now, I don't know if any of y'all have ever lived through or been with anybody that had the DTs and the hallucinations, but he did in our house. See, I didn't know to send him to a hospital. I didn't know what to do with him. I wasn't aware of what I was dealing with. And he went through all this in our den. Well, I would be so afraid of him that I would go up, sit on the steps with a fireplace poker in my hand. And I would think, if that man comes up these steps, I'm going to kill him. Well, that's not the first time I wanted to kill him, I can promise you. Because I buried him so many times that I had planned his funeral down to every detail. I even knew what I was going to wear. I kept that dress in my closet ready at all times. That's the truth. I knew how many people were coming. I knew where I was going to have it. I knew the music. I knew it all, and that's the truth. I buried him. But, on the other hand, he could only die for a short while. Because if he died for very long, then I was going to be left raising those three girls by myself. Now, that wasn't a secret. I told him that. I would stand and shake my finger in his face and I'd say, I want you to die. But, you better not. Because if you do, you're going to leave me with these girls and I'm going to stand over your grave and haunt you forever. Now, that was insanity. But I said it. So, I thought that night, I'll kill him. I'm going to kill him, let him come up these steps, and it's going to be wham, and he's got it here. But he didn't try it. He couldn't try it. He wasn't able to try it. The next morning, I got up to go to Al-Anon. He couldn't get up. He, he couldn't move. But I didn't know what was wrong. So I went to my meeting, and I went in, and I told an AA. I said, he, he didn't arouse this morning. And he said, I think he's in big trouble. He said, so I think I'll come over to your house with you and take a look. So he did. He came over, and he was in a coma. And he said, well, I'm saying we better get him in the hospital right now, immediately. So he had a doctor. He knew of a doctor that knew how to treat the situation. So the miracle in the program, I was able to get him in the hospital. 
Well, when I got him in, the ACE helped me. We got him into the hospital. And I went back to my friend's house after, you know, everything was settled. And I sat down on her couch. And for the first time in my life, the weight came off my shoulders. And the reason is because he was in somebody else's care. Somebody else was looking after him. And I did not have to worry about it for that day. And I just sat down. I'll never forget the relief that I felt. And she was a happy lady. She was an elderly lady, but she was a happy lady. And I said to her, I said, Ms. Lindsay, how did, how did you get to be so happy? I said, I want to find out. I want to do the same thing you're doing. And she said, because I walk with the Lord. And I said, well, how do you do that? I want to do that. And she said, well, all you have to do is just ask God to come into your heart. She said, you want to do it now? I said, yes. So I took her hand, and we said the Lord's Prayer. And I turned my life and my will over to him right then and there. And it was as if, and this is the truth, blinders came off my eyes. Well, I got some of the good old-time religion. I mean, I got into the scriptures, and I was just preaching. In fact, every time I get up to speak now, which isn't that often, but I always have to laugh because my alcoholic said, Honey, you were made for the pulpit. He said, You can preach. He said, Sister, preach on. That's what he used to say when I'd get on a roll. He'd say, get up there, honey, and give him a talk. This, you know. So I guess this is where I belong. But anyway, I get the scripture, and I find everything in it about drunks. And there are a lot of passages about drunks. Lots. And he'd be in a stupor, sitting in a chair, and I'd bring out that Bible, and I'd say, this is what St. Matthew says about drunks. And he'd go, fine. That's fine. Probably a lot of them back in his day, you know. But I wanted him to know he was living in sin. And I didn't want any part of it because I was righteous. I'd gotten religion. And I was sick. Woo, big time. So, poor man, it's no wonder he didn't sober up. But... I think the pain of living was worse than the pain of dying, you know. (laughs) But anyway, uh, he finally, uh, it it was a bad situation. And uh, he finally, uh, after he got out of the hospital, though, his company gave him three months off. And during those three months, he got it back pretty much together. And the company also gave him a big promotion. You know, let's pat him on the back. He's gotten his act together. He was smart, successful. So they gave him a big promotion. And here again, we were going to make another big move. We were going to Chicago this time. And the grass was going to be greener than it's ever been. We were going to have, you know, this was fantasy land. We are going to ice skate. We were going to have a ball, you know, living up in Wonderland. So we get up to Wonderland. And he says, um, now, you know about that little Al-Anon that you've been going to? He said, I really think you ought to forget about Al-Anon. He said, because, we're, you know, everything's okay now. 
That, that all happened. That's in the past. The past is in the past. And every time you go to one of those meetings, that brings up the past. This reminds me of the past. Well, I didn't want to rock the boat. You know, we here we had this second chance. He was straight. So I thought, hmm, well, maybe I ought not to go. You know, maybe... Maybe I will rock the boat. So I didn't go. And I stayed, I gave up Al-Anon at that point. So I wouldn't rock the boat. Well, we stayed up there a couple of years. And uh, he decided that he didn't like the snow. And I still to this day don't understand why I didn't like the snow. Because every time it snowed, he was in Florida. And I always ended up shoveling the snow. So I don't know why he didn't like the snow. He never saw it. But anyway, that was a good excuse at any. So he decided we were going to come back home. And uh, he gave up his job. Well, now you can imagine, with three children, giving up your job is scary. But he said, you know, we're going home. It's fine. So we pack up the three kids and we move, start back down the highway. And we get as far as Cincinnati, and he said, oh, i got friends here in Cincinnati, and I'm going to run in and say hi. Well, he came out with a job. I mean, the man could work miracles. So he had a job. But we still moved to Atlanta. He just The company he worked for was in Cincinnati. Well, we got back down here, and he said, um, you need a job. And I said, what do you mean I need a job? He said, well, you've got to go to work, and you've got to make $700 a month. Excuse me? He said $700 a month. Well, that was a lot of money in those days, especially because somebody didn't have any experience. So he said, you just get on the bus tomorrow, and you go down to Atlanta, and you go to those banks, and you walk in and tell them that you need a job making $700 a month. And I'm so stupid I did it. (laughs) And I went right down to Trust Company. And I walked right into the personnel department, and I got an application, and I told the lady, I said, do you have anything that pays $700 a month? And she said, would you like to step in my office? And I still to this day think that she was trying to get me out of the main room so other people didn't, you know, couldn't hear me. And so, true story. And I, walked, I went on in her office, and this other lady came in, and she said, have you any experience? As a head teller. And I said, no, no, I've been a teller, but not a head teller. She said, well, would you like to be a head teller? And I said, well, what does it pay? And she said, $700 a month. (laughs) I said, sure, I'll do it. $700 was a magic number. So I got the job. Well, it was awful. She gave me a book that thick, told me to go home and read it. I cried for weeks. I would come home at night in tears. I mean, literally, this is no joke. But I did it, and I got $700 a month. He got 500 and I got 200 Now, that was sick. I was out to lunch, breaking off. But he, if that's what happened. So we did this for um, 10 months. And then he got another job. Here again, we were off and rolling. And we went to Athens, Georgia. And we were over there 11 years in Athens. And I went, he told me then, he said, you got to go back to work. Well, nobody in Athens pays $700. I didn't pay that today. And certainly didn't pay it then. But I went to the bank, got a little job, and uh, I, got, I got a little job in the drive-in window this time. 
Well, that was fine because I didn't have to think. I didn't have to do anything, just be a teller. That was great. So that didn't last long, though, because I guess they realized my potential or, or they were too ignorant to know the difference. But they gave me a job as a head teller. And so there I was again, back in the, back in the thinking. But um, things rocked along okay. About this time now in the girls' lives, they're teenagers. And they're dating. And they're having their own little set of problems. And, of course, none of it was my fault. Everything was his fault. Nothing was my fault, ever. And Liz and her dad, the oldest and her dad, got in a big fight over this young man. And she moved out. And she was a senior in high school. And that was the lowest point of my life, without a doubt. The lowest point of my life. And I blamed him entirely for her leaving home. I cried. I cried day in, day out. But I was one of these, I don't know if any of you identify with this, but I was a closet crier. I could not cry in public because I didn't want anybody to know I hurt that bad. So I cried in the bathroom, cried in the closet, cried in the utility room, I cried in the garage, I cried wherever you couldn't see me because I didn't want anybody to know that I hurt and that I was in that much pain. I had a lot of pride. A lot of pride. So at work, I would go up in the ladies' restroom, and I would boo-hoo, then I'd put on all my makeup, come back down, put a smile on my face, because I didn't want anybody to know what was going on in our house. Nobody. What went on behind those doors were our business and nobody else's, and I was very closed-mouthed about it. But Elizabeth stayed away about three months, and then she came back home. Well, when she came back, things were pretty bad. Things had gotten real bad. And he was very depressed. And the girl said to me, Mom, Dad's really depressed. And I think you need to do something about this. And I didn't know what to do. Because drinking was not open in our house. He didn't drink openly. We didn't see him drinking. Our youngest daughter, the only time she ever saw her father take a drink was she caught him one time at the beach drinking out of the back of his car. That was the only time in her life she ever saw her father take a drink. So this was not an open subject. They said, something's wrong with Dad, and we're scared of him. Well, we had a pistol in the house, and I took that pistol down to the bank, and I put it in the trust company vault. Now, I knew it was safe because I was the only one that had the combination. trust company didn't know I had it there. They probably would have died. But I had a loaded pistol in that bank vault. I wasn't sick, no. But that night, the very night that I took that pistol out of the house, he came home and he said, where's the pistol? Now, that pistol was something that we kept on the closet shelf. And that was something we did not, you know, was never touched. He said, where's the pistol? And I said, the pistol's at Trust Company Bank in the vault. And he looked at me and he said, you think I'm going to kill you? And I said, well, you're awfully depressed. He said, I'm going to tell you something. If I want to blow your brains out, he said, I'll go get one and have it here in an hour and I'll kill you. And I'll kill the kids too. And he meant it. And I knew I had a problem. Well, I was back in Al-Anon at this time. And... We had had a confrontation about a month or so prior to this incident, and I had looked at myself in the mirror 
And what I saw was a woman with her hair sticking straight out like she'd stuck her hands in a socket. And I knew I was out of control because all I saw was a witch in the mirror. And I had gotten back into Al-Anon. And the concept of intervention was something that was fairly new at that time. So I decided to find out about intervention. And I did. And I went to, you know, the Georgia Mental Health. And they had counselors and people to direct you through it. And they had facilities to take care of it. And so one day, they, you know, I wanted to find out about the program. They took me through the facilities. And when I was walking through there, in a room was sitting about six ladies. They were all staring out in space. Zombies. Total zombies. And I said to the director, I said, what's wrong with these women over there? She said, oh, they're all married alcoholics. <laughs> and I went, whoa. I said, I'm not going down with them. That I made up my mind that day that we were going through intervention. We were going to bring the drinking out of the closet. We were going to face the demon. And we were going to get either help or he was going. That was the bottom line. So we went through intervention and he did not get help. He said no. But he was out of the door. He was gone. We had him move out that night. Couldn't come back home. And that's the way it was for two years. This me and the girls. Two years. Well, one day the phone rang. It's on a Saturday morning. I picked up. Hello. Click. Phone rang again. I said, hello. Click. And the girls go, Mom, if it rings again, let us have, you know, we'll get the whistle, blow it in his ear and get rid of him, you know. And they picked up. One of them picked up and it was him. And he said, come get me. He was in bad shape. So the girls went and got him, and they put him back in the hospital. He, he signed himself in this time, went in the hospital. And uh, he stayed there about three or four days. And I got a phone call. Would you come? So I went. We were separated. We weren't divorced. So I went. And uh, he said, well, I've learned my lesson. He said, I'm never going to drink again. I've learned my lesson. I said, I realize how important you and the girls are in my life, and I've had two years to think about this, and, you know, I'm going to get straight now, and let's get back together. And I, fine. I loved him. I said, sure. I mean, we've been married, you know, for years and years and years. So um, I took him back. Mistake, mistake, mistake. I was devastated. I was devastated. I had such high hopes, and it did not work out. We stayed together two and a half years, and I stayed very close to the program. It was an awful two and a half years. Well, I don't know how you are, but I, have, I had boundaries, and I knew that if he ever physically touched me, that was my boundary. I don't know if anybody else has those boundaries, but I had mine. I could take the verbal and I could take the doing without and all that, but I could not take, and I wasn't going to take the physical. Well, all the girls were gone by this time, and it was just the two of us. And on a Sunday, beautiful day, we went to church, came home, 
And I'll never to this day know, but in three minutes, my life turned around. He attacked me. And he attacked me very abusively. And I was able to get away from him and to get out of that house. And I never went back. And I left there with my clothes on my back and my car. That's all I had. And my daughter in Atlanta, Elizabeth, my oldest, she took me in. And I I came here, and I lived with her for two years. And that was the best two years that I had had in my life up to that point. We got a divorce, and Elizabeth has never had the program, didn't have Alateen. But she and her sisters know more about Al-Anon than any girls I know. And she gave me permission to cry openly. She gave me permission to feel my feelings, to get in touch with my feelings. She would just sit and let me cry. And she said, that's okay, Mother. That's all right. You just go ahead and cry. And she'd cry with me. And I know what it's like to have a broken heart. Because I did. My heart was broken. I mean broken. I could feel the pieces. And I would just lay there and cry. And she'd just pat me and say, okay, Mom. But But the bright side of that coin was that she had my first grandson. And so when God takes one thing away, he brings back something else. And in walked this little light into my life. And I had three girls, and here I get this grandson. I had no brothers, and this was the light of my life. And he loved me. Of course, children love you unconditionally. And he was wonderful. He still is wonderful. But um, I decided during that point in time in my life that I wanted the Lord to know that I was still in control. So I said, look, if, here's the recipe. Now, if you ever want me to find another one, I want him to be like this. And so I wrote down what I wanted. Now, I wanted God to be sure that the next one would be perfect. I wanted a Christian. I wanted him to love Al-Anon. He had to like Al-Anon. I wanted him to love my children. I wanted him to love me. But I made my list. I call it my recipe. And... uh, I just prayed over it, tucked it away, and I said, I'm not going to look now. I'm not going out looking. But if you ever bring him, make sure that he's got all these, because that's what I want. And that's what he did. So I went on, got into a meeting up in Alpharetta. One of my group members is here. (laughs) And uh, I was in the meeting up there in Alpharetta, and one of the ladies in the group she came to me one night and she said, uh, could I have about five minutes of your time? And I thought, you know, she's going to talk about it. I don't know, you know. And I said, oh, sure, sure. And she said, uh, well, I've got somebody I want you to meet. And I said, oh, really? You know, I hadn't been out looking. I wasn't bar hopping or anything. And she said, uh, well, he's a real nice man. And she said, as a matter of fact, I know him real well. And I said, oh, how well? And she said, well, he was married to my sister. I said, what? Excuse me, did I hear that correct? I said, what, he was married to your sister? 
She said, yes. She said, he's my ex-brother-in-law. Well, now, I don't know about your family, but in my family, if somebody divorced, we didn't speak to the other person. <laughs> it's that simple. Once you're out, you're out. Nobody asks you back in, and they certainly didn't help you marry. That's for sure, you know. And she said, oh, no, no. said, he's wonderful. said, my sister was a nut in our house, you know. So anyway, she proceeded to tell me all about him. And I said, well, you know. Fine, sure, you can give him my phone number if he calls well and good, you know. So that was that. Went on home, didn't think anything about it. Well, my job at Trust Company uh, at that time was to handle people that have a habit of writing checks before they have money in their account, you know, deadbeats. And so every morning, all these phone calls I get, you know, well, I put money in after 2 o'clock, you know, would you pay my checks, Ms. Smith, you know, blah, 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 or Ms. Lundy at that time. And... Uh, so anyway, I got a phone call, and the guy said, you know, this is da-da-da-da, and I said, uh, God, that name doesn't ring a bell. You know, I couldn't. I got my list out real quick, and I said, uh, have you written any bad checks? <laughs> That's exactly what I said. And he said, uh, no, as a matter of fact, I never have. Uh, I never will. I don't think I never plan to. I said, whoa, I've made a big mistake. And um, he said, I'm so-and-so's uh, ex-brother-in-law. Uh, oh, no. Well, he was nice enough to call me again. <laughs> we talked several times on the telephone, and he said, would you like to go out? And I said, um, well, yeah. You know, and I'd heard about women going out with men. They didn't know. So I wanted to be sure that he did not know where I lived. Because I heard that you don't want to know, that you don't want them to know so that, you know, they don't know where you live. If you don't like them, you'll never have to see them again, right? So I said, I'll meet you at the restaurant. He said, that'll be fine. And he said, I'll get there early so that you won't have to walk in by yourself. Mm, now, wait a minute, ladies. Nobody had ever been that thoughtful before, you know. So I drove up, and there he was, sitting in the parking lot. And he told me what he looked like and what kind of car he was driving. And... Um, he got out, and I thought, ooh, he's cute. <laughs> now, he's cute. And so Elizabeth, though, had come home that day to help me dress to, for the day. And this was a big thing. And she said, now, Mother, be sure you take pictures of the children. And I said, pictures? And she said, well, yes, I want him to see what, you know, your family looks like. And I thought, oh, no. But I did it. I packed the pictures. Well, he was so nice, he looked at them. <laughs> True story. We went to Tom and Jerry's for dessert, and I put them all out on the table. So he was—he knew what he was in for right from the start. And um, so he asked me the next night out, and I said, "Well, I have to go to an Al-Anon meeting." And he said, "Well, fine." I said, "Well, you want to come?" And he said, "Sure." So he came to Al-Anon our second day. Now, if I knew at that point that. If he would never, you know, if he liked us, fine. If he didn't, then he'd never ask me out again. Well, he liked us. So we, uh, we had a third date. And I took him to one of the children's birthday parties. And then it was about my birthday. And so he, everything that came along for the first few months seemed to be family-oriented, you know. So he got, in, he got right into the family, and he won his way into their hearts real fast. So about the sixth month, and... Uh, 
we had an opportunity to go to North Carolina to visit with the, one of the girls' in-laws. So we went up for the weekend, and uh, we were staying in a motel. And we left their house, and we were driving back to the motel. And just as we turned in, he turned around to me and said, Will you marry me? I said, Richard, you asked me turning in a motel. I said, How am I going to tell this to the girls? And he said, Just tell them I asked you to marry me. So I said, yes. So he, he said, then I'm going to give you two weeks to get it together. Because he said, we have vacation coming up. And he said, we'll have honeymoon on vacation. So I came back and I told the girls. And I said, we got two weeks. We're going to get it together. And we did. We got a wedding together in two weeks. And it was a small, sweet family wedding. And um, it was uh, it's the best thing I ever did for myself in my entire life, to marry him. And you're going to get to meet him. He's going to be here in a little while. He'll be here tonight. And the neat thing about this man is that when I was pregnant with my third daughter, I just knew it was going to be a boy. Just knew it. So I never even thought of a girl's name. I named the third girl Richard Allen. Well, his name is Richard Allen. I waited 23 years, and I got my Richard Allen. And he is wonderful. The kids call him Pop. And he is really a pop to them. He is a marvelous man. He, the beauty of our relationship is that we're friends. We talk. We pray together every day. We pray together. We're prayer partners. And I want to tell you that you cannot fight with somebody you pray with. You can't. You have such utmost respect for the person that you pray with that you cannot fight with them. And we have yet to have a crossword. We have never had an ugly word between us. And I'm not a doormat. He's not a doormat. It's just that we know how to communicate, thanks to this program. I have never worked this program so hard as I have worked it in the last three years. We've been married three years. And I have used every tool in this program because it has enhanced my marriage so much. People say to me, well, why do you stay in the program? He's not an alcoholic. I stay in this program because I still need to be mended. I need this program every day of my life. I can't imagine a day without this program. I use this program in my professional life. The other day I gave a program on positive thinking. Where did I get my material? From Al-Anon. Everything's from Al-Anon. It, it, the other day, I, it was 11 o'clock before people stopped coming in my office. They didn't come in to talk about business. They came in to talk about their personal life. Everybody is affected by alcoholism. Everybody. And so God uses me in that place of business, not to do banking business, but to touch the lives of the employees and the customers that come into to trust company. But this year... I was asked to speak in um, in January. Are we running out of time? Oh my gosh! This I've got to close. I had no idea. Somebody should have stopped me. Well, anyway, thank you for having me, and I really enjoyed being here. And the next time, huh? No. Oh, but you can. Well, let me just share one more quick little thing, and I'm going to sit down. I'm going to have, gosh, I get on a roll, I'm going to quit. But 
let me just share. They asked me to do a program this year, and I could not figure out what to do the program on. And finally, every time somebody asks me what to do a program on, the Lord says, this is it, honey, do it on this. And so he gave me 12 suggested steps for my goals for this year. And for January, my goal was to keep it simple. Now, if you practice anything for 30 days, it's a habit, right? Okay. So for 30 days, I had to keep it simple in January. In February, I had to practice patience. That was my 30-day program. In March, was think positive. That was my 30-day program. April, be a team player. I'm here today. I'm being a team player, right? In May, have an attitude of gratitude. In June, take charge of your attitude. July, be generous. In August, maintain good motives. And I have found out that your motives are the backbone of everything you do. So you have to maintain good motives, positive motives. September is live and let live. October is live one day at a time. November is easy does it. And December is change what you can. And I have to tell you at this point in my life that I have four grandsons and I have one more due in uh, June. So that's going to be five grandchildren. My girls decided I'll get fertile at the same time. And I have three within an eight-month span. The third one will be three and eight months. So now I have five, and my name is Grammy. And I love being Grammy. So thank you for having me and listening, and I've enjoyed this weekend. It's been wonderful. I feel like queen for a weekend. Thank you.